Hi everybody and welcome back to our vlog series. My name is Alexander Stremitzer and I'm the professor for law, economics and business at ETH Zurich. Gun ownership is a hotly debated issue in the US, with some people considering a sacred constitutionally protected right of all Americans, while others claim that it comes at a terrible loss of life as a result of mass shootings but also because everyday conflict and other crimes become more violent. John Donahue is the Carl Smith Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and one of the leading experts on this issue. We want to take the opportunity to talk with John about gun control policy and what we can learn from the American experience. John, welcome to the CLE. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this issue of gun control? Sure, it's great to be here, Alex. Uh, I'm a professor of law at Stanford Law School in California. Um, and uh, I also have a PhD in economics and, and have spent most of my career doing a lot of empirical evaluation of law and policy. And so 20 years ago, uh, Richard Posner, becoming the new editor of the American Law and Economics Review, asked me to review a book uh, on gun policy. And um, I agreed to do that. And I seem to have been uh, more and more involved in guns and crime ever since then. Now, um, the NRA, which is um, the main lobbying body um, lobbying for gun ownership and the right to carry in the US, um, has this trademark slogan that um, the only way to uh, prevent a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Now, this sounds very convincing at first. Uh, what's your pushback on this? Yes, well, there, there certainly are uh, episodes where uh, personal carrying of guns can, can be helpful. And, and of course, in the US, the police all carry guns and we, we know that they have been effective in, in reducing crime. But it turns out that the uh, full implications of, of gun carrying outside the home are much more complex than the simple, uh, simple uh, slogans of the NRA would suggest. And that's what my work has been trying to uh, uncover over the last few years. Now, you're presenting uh, one of your new papers um, this afternoon uh, in a workshop here at ETH. Can you um, just uh, summarize the main insights of that paper uh, to us and our viewers? Yeah. Well, for the last few years, I had been working uh, on the issue of how does crime change after a state uh, adopts what's called a right to carry law. And these are laws that essentially give all citizens within a state the right to get a permit and, and therefore carry a gun outside the home. And that work had shown that uh, violent crime was actually elevated uh, on balance when a state adopted a right to carry law. Um, so the current work is, is trying to do a couple of different things. That work was all done looking at uh, state data across the United States over the period from 1979 to 2014. 
And so the current paper updates the data through 2019, but also now looks at the citywide level. And one of the first things I was curious to see was would the results that were generated on statewide data hold up when we had more homogeneous units, such as uh, the large cities of the United States? And indeed, the, uh, the, the broad conclusions about elevating crime hold up. But this paper tries to do something that I had not done before, which is try to understand some of the underlying mechanics about why crime does rise when right-to-carry laws are adopted. So um, if somebody now says to you, um, sure, John, you have convinced us that um, uh, the right to carry guns increases maybe gun violence um, and, and maybe even the theft of guns. Uh, that's also something that you point out in, in, in your study. But somehow questions whether there's not a positive external effect that these gun owners actually confer on the rest of us who don't carry guns. And the story could be something like people who carry gun just create a general deterrence on crime because a criminal who is contemplating to commit some sort of crime has to imagine that maybe he's going to get involved in a gunfight. And that might actually lower the overall um, level of crime. And it might be that um, these people who say, well, you know, I don't carry guns and, and consider themselves as the good guys, um, are actually the free riders who um, free ride on this deterrence that's created by the people who carry the guns. So what, what do you say to that? It's an extremely important question, Alex, and it's even more important because it's a question that the public is not well equipped to answer. Uh, when I talk to the politicians and uh, policymakers, they often want to hear anecdotes. And so you can certainly find anecdotes where someone did defend with a gun, uh, many anecdotes where something goes terribly wrong when someone tries to defend with a gun or road rage leads a otherwise law-abiding citizen to shoot someone that wouldn't happen. But those don't answer this broader question, is there some umbrella of deterrence uh, which doesn't generate any anecdote, but can be a very powerful and important factor. So that's what my work is, has tried to, done, uh, tried to do by looking at the aggregate impact on crime across uh, states. And that's where uh, uh, the, the ultimate conclusion that we came up with was that um, whatever the underlying uh, offsetting effects are, where some things are good and some things are bad, the bottom line effect was that the law on balance was, was pernicious. In other words, overall, uh, you know, while we may not know exactly how much deterrent uh, effect there is, and I assume there is some, uh, the, uh, the adverse consequences are greater. And as you mentioned, I think there are three reasons that, that this has happened. Uh, and I think people are surprised about the three, and that's where I go to the point that uh, the NRA story is, is a little too simple. Because you never hear the NRA talking about gun theft and the consequences of gun theft. And when people start carrying guns outside the home in the United States, they frequently leave the gun in their car. And it is now uh, 
very common for gangs in the United States to just hire their you know, younger brothers or something to go through parking lots and just open up cars. And even the unlocked cars frequently will have a gun under the front seat or in the console. And so uh, our estimate is 100,000 guns are stolen each year in the United States because of this uh, change to allowing citizens to carry handguns, which 30 years ago was, was much more uh, restricted in the United States than it is today. So gun theft is a big problem, and that means you're arming the criminal element, and often criminals who otherwise wouldn't have guns now have them. The second thing that is, is surprisingly potent is we found that the effectiveness of police uh, diminished because of the uh, move to right-to-carry laws. And we're still not sure all of the reasons for this, but the bottom line conclusion, again, is if you look at the rate of, of solving crimes, which is captured in what's called the clearance rate for crimes, it takes a very sharp decline in the years after a right to carry law is adopted. And no one uh, in the public discourse that I'm aware of had even made this point until uh, we were able to identify it in the paper that I'm presenting today. Um, so I, I suspect that there are a number of reasons why that happens. Uh, the way I think of it is that right to carry laws, which allow citizens more broadly to carry guns, uh, serves as a sort of tax on police. Uh, and that tax is paid in a number of different ways. One, we just mentioned 100,000 guns are stolen every year. So that's 100,000 police reports, police investigations, taking time away from other things that they could be doing. But another aspect of the very widespread carrying of guns, and we're talking about tens of millions of people carrying guns on a daily basis in the US, is that gun discharges go up, uh, accidents uh, with guns and somebody getting shot accidentally. And then of course, the road rage type of incidents that, that are becoming more common in the U United States all take up more Time. So the, even if those are not criminal acts, uh, you know, and obviously it's not a crime to have your gun stolen, but it is something that is going to be taking up police time. Another phenomenon that turns out to be uh, important, I think, but this will await further research to confirm, is we see some episodes where we see the behavior of the police is changed a lot in the wake of these right to carry laws. And probably the most vivid example of this is, and, and this is something we have a video of, where a police uh, individual stops a car because there was some problem with the license plate or something about the car. And his camera, the police camera, uh, documented this interaction. And it's a very cordial reaction. He walks to the car and says, sir, can I see your license and registration? And as the guy is reaching for his wallet to provide the license and registration, he said, uh, an officer, I want you to know I'm legally carrying a, a weapon. And somehow the police officer thought that his reaching for that wallet was reaching for the gun. And within seven seconds, he had shot the individual multiple times and killed him. Uh, and these types of interactions uh, are increasing. And, and it's now the case that police in the United States kill at 50 to 100 times the rate of police killings uh, of citizens in 
you know, our competitor nations, for example, in Europe. Uh, and this has strained police community relations. And in 2020, uh, with the killing of George Floyd, those riots against the police spread out all across the nation and, and caused quite a bit of crime. So police interactions have changed. We're, we're trying to see if we can document um, whether police uh, are, are maybe uh, not stopping people as often because, of course, they feel the threat of armed citizens. Um, and so uh, the third effect that I think was not anticipated is um, there seems to be overwhelming evidence in the paper I'm presenting today that criminals in response to right to carry laws carry weapons more frequently when they commit their crime. So before they might have had a knife or a strong arm robbery, now it's much more likely to be a robbery with a gun. And that has uh, you know, pernicious uh, consequences as well, uh, as bad as it is to be uh, held up in a strong arm robbery or, or with a knife, uh, it, it is just more deadly to be uh, confronting someone with a gun. So obviously the carriers themselves uh, occasionally engage in inappropriate behavior and that can elevate the crime rate. But I think the two novel contributions of today's paper is to document both the impact of theft as well as the uh, uh, changes in police behavior and the behavior of criminals. Now, push me, uh, let me push you a little bit on kind of the limit of the implications of your paper. So in some way, we can think of a police officer to also be a citizen who carries a gun. Mm -hmm. So would you go as far as, uh, as to suggest that certain police officers should not carry guns? Um, or would you say, well, this is an example of... Um, of the ultimate law-abiding citizen who has been certified to carry a gun. So how do you think about this? It's a, it's a wonderful question. And I do think that um, uh, there are advantages of limiting the, the people who carry guns to those who are well-trained and also uh, can be established to be you know, worthy of the responsibility of carrying a gun. Uh, and I would like to see much more uh, supervision of the police. I think on the whole, uh, the United States has 800,000 sworn police officers. And I think a very large percentage of them are really exceptionally fine individuals. But, um, you know, work has shown that 5% of teachers are bad, 5% of doctors tend to be bad. And if you think of 5% of police officers being bad, that's 40,000 uh, bad police officers. And, and more could be done to monitor those and remove them from the police department. Um, but for the other, uh, uh, you know, more responsible police, uh, they have an advantage over uh, the typical American because they are well-trained. They, they take uh, uh, steps to both anticipate situations where they uh, will encounter violence and how to respond to it, and, and also trained in the use of firearms. What troubles me today is many states, 24 states in the United States have now passed laws uh, providing what is called permitless carry. And this allows any citizen to carry a gun outside the home without any training of, 
of any kind. So all you need to do is, uh, you know, be able to put down enough money to buy the gun, and uh, you're able to walk around uh, uh, carrying a gun. And, and this is a very different scenario because these people may not be well equipped uh, to use a gun, and and there there have been some you know frightening missteps uh, because of that. Um, but they're also often not aware of even the issues of when it's legal to use a gun for self-defense. Um, there was a recent uh, NRA video that I thought was quite interesting where they were very happy to highlight a uh, Lyft driver, like an Uber driver, who uh, was uh, an intended victim of uh, car theft. So what had happened is he had invited a... Uh, uh, a passenger into his car for a ride, he thought, and the guy got into the back seat, and, they, and the guy in the back seat was a criminal, and he had a comrade try to open the, the driver door at the same time that the guy got into the back seat, and they were going to try to steal the car. And the guy from the back starts, uh, you know, reaching forward uh, to make sure that the uh, driver doesn't have a gun in his pocket, which he didn't, and the guy from the outside is trying to pull the uh, Lyft driver out of the car. And the Lyft driver had a car, uh, had a gun in the compartment in the door. And so he grabbed the gun, scared off the guy from the outside, and then turned around to the guy in the back seat. And the guy put up his hands and ran away. And the NRA interviewed this guy and he said, well, why didn't you kill the guy? You, you had the right under the Castle Doctrine to kill the guy. You could have just killed him. And the guy had brought a lawyer to the interview, and the lawyer said, well, actually, in the state of Wisconsin, because the Lyft driver had invited the guy into the back seat, it is not permissible to invoke the Castle Doctrine, and it would have been unlawful to shoot a guy who had put up his arms and was running away. So these are the sorts of things that I think are, are troubling when people who don't know how to use guns, have never used guns before, and are not aware of when it's lawful to use guns, start carrying. Now, we are here in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, and um, you know that uh, Switzerland is a country with um, uh, a very high level of private um, gun ownership. So it's a country of eight million people, and there's about two million privately owned guns. So what is the lesson that Switzerland can learn from the US or the U.S. can learn from Switzerland. Yes, well, I think there are quite a number of interesting uh, uh, things for, for us to learn from Switzerland, I would say, um, and maybe the other way in negative <laughs> Uh, responses, but uh, just to give uh, some background, so Switzerland, uh, you know, has about one quarter as many guns as as uh, people, and in the United States, with a country of about 320 million people, we have 350 million guns. So, so we are a much more uh, gun saturated population. Um, but an important thing to note, I I think, is that there are parts of the country where gun laws are rather permissive. So take the state of Vermont, for example. It's long been uh, the case there that you could carry a gun without a permit. 
But Vermont is actually quite a bit more like Switzerland than many American states are. So it's a much more stable society. If you look at many uh, measures of uh, stability, how many children grow up in two-family uh, uh, scenarios, um, and, and, a, and a range of social metrics, uh, Vermont and Switzerland look quite alike. While many other states, the, the social metrics uh, essentially show that the United States has what you might call a, a, a lot of socioeconomically deprived individuals. And that probably plays a not uh, inconsiderable role in why the prevalence of guns uh, leads to so many uh, misuses of guns and, and less misuse in, in more stable societies like uh, Vermont as well as in Switzerland. I would also note that the NRA frequently says um, uh, things about the Swiss environment that I think exaggerate uh, the, the claims to be more supportive of an NRA view where everyone should be able to do whatever they would like with guns. And if you see the way that the Swiss militia, for example, is, uh, is organized, it's much closer to what I think the Second Amendment was originally designed to provide, which was a militia that could provide uh, uh, to protect the state. Um, today, the NRA thinks if every individual is allowed to have whatever gun that they want, that is what the Second Amendment uh, requires, and I think that's a, a misreading of the actual constitutional law. Thank you very much, John, for sharing these insights with us. Um, it's very nice to hear that um, Switzerland can actually be um, an interesting model for some of the policy debates um, in, in the US. So it was very pleasurable to talk to you. And um, to our viewers, thank you for watching, and um, see you next time.